Where is God? We are taught that God is out there, that God is even up there. And we have language to support this external God. But what about the God within, the ever-present God? How do we locate, connect with, and even think about a God that is both within us and ever-present around us? As a bicultural mother, creator, and embodied black woman, I knew that Tanika Williams would have some light to share on this subject. So I invite you to join us for this deeper conversation. I was raised bicultural. And so for me, what that meant was growing up in a Jamaican household in the United States of America and negotiating two very different understandings of what it is to be black simultaneously. In addition to that, I always joke that I was raised in the church of dance hall. And so for me, what that meant was that I was not raised in a traditional Christian church setting. Uh, both of my parents had interests in dance hall music and dance hall culture, one from a standpoint of attending dances and participating, the other from the standpoint of documenting it. And so for myself, what that provided me very early on was an ability to turn my eye to the experience of the definitive culture that shaped me. Mm. And earlier in my academic career, I wrote a bit about women in Jamaica, specifically African Jamaican women, directing the lens of the videographer, directing the lens of the photographer in the context of dance hall spaces in order to shape their own iconography. Mm. And my interest in women creating their aesthetic and presenting that to the world has been with me for a very long time. And now the shape that that has taken is considering sacred in a much more broader sense. Mm. And so I remember uh, showing some of the video that I myself recorded or video that I was able, vintage footage I was able to secure and then edit and people being very shocked by these very physical displays of the human body in the American context. And, you know, I've always joked that America's baseline is puritanical. And so regardless of where you find yourself in the context of your socioeconomic or racial background in America, once you're rooted in the American context, it's very much a Puritan context. And so as such, I found that even though sex is talked about, the body is talked about, uh, money and other physical things are talked about, they're never really experienced. Mm. And so... Um, in the context of being in the Caribbean, maybe it's the heat, um, there, there is no way to have a disembodied experience, so to speak. And uh, for me, when I began to think about these movements as something sacred, I was able to find God in these spaces and these expressions. And um, also most dance halls, they begin or close out with some kind of uh, reggae-based religious music. Mm -hmm. And so it's quite funny to see the juxtaposition of, you know, 
thanking God on one hand and on the other hand, you know, somebody's talking about some sexual act. And it's beautiful to see them not as separate but as one. So that's my background in well, terms of, yes. Let me just mm-hmm. say that you, you've sparked so many ideas and thoughts in my head uh, just learning about your background, which is so rich. Um, Thank you. Yeah, your background is so rich. Just to start with, I was raised in the church of dance hall. Like, that right there is like, I want the documentary. I want to, like, (laughs) see how we got to this perspective. But uh, because I spent four years after I left Texas in Boston, and I was in Dorchester. Mm -hmm. And there's a large Caribbean community. Mm -hmm. My first juve, my first, like, uh, parade. Like, everything was there in Boston. And that was that community. You didn't, you weren't in that community unless you were immersed in that. Um, I also learned who Barris Hammond was and fell in (laughs) love with the Barris Hammond voice. Um, Mm -hmm. But this puritanic notion of America, and as you said, maybe it's the heat, it reminds me as I was doing research on the history of the black church and how we got to here, um, that very puritanic notion, there were uh, books written about Africa and it was very King Kong and savage and beastly. And these, the Europeans had never been, so they had to rely on someone else's take. Mm-hmm. And when they first saw the African women in a European context, they immediately said they're promiscuous, mm-hmm. they're whores. Because, as you said, maybe it's the heat, you know, the skin is not looked at in a very puritanic way. Well, they didn't understand that it's hot in Africa and you wouldn't normally put on a bunch of clothes. Whereas these British women were very tied up and very mm-hmm. corseted and very covered and immediately without knowing the context labeled all the women as promiscuous, which mm-hmm. has traveled throughout history. It has. And I guess I would push back by saying that there's nothing wrong with that label. And, mm. um, when you and, and so, in addition to identifying as a woman, I'm also a mother, mm. and I'm a birth mother. And so I come to the experience of giving birth as that time in my life where, for me personally, I did not have an encounter with God. I had an encounter with a divinity in myself. Mm. And to, you know, I was talking with my partner about this last night. I actively remember birthing my daughter, which is something women are supposed to forget, right? You're supposed to forget your birth pain so that you keep having babies. Um, Because birth pain is a real, (laughs) it's some real pain. And I remember the experience as straddling both life and death mm-hmm. simultaneously. There was no separation. And so within the blink of an eye, life was possible and death was also possible. And it was one of the most humbling experiences for me to not know if I would live or die, to not know if this child that was coming forth would live or die really was a reality reality check. And so it also allowed me to think about the body in a different type of way. And 
I understand why in a European context, in an early European context, there was this divorce from the body. Uh, you, you look at Western Christian thought and so much of it in the European context, not Western Christian thought that's coming out of North Africa because the church fathers, mm -hmm. the patrician fathers were North African, right? So we're talking about much later when, in the context of Western Europe, they begin writing their theologies. They're writing their theologies almost out of and in response to tragic events like the Black Plague. You know, in documentaries about Martin Luther, they speak about his experience of just watching people around him die. When you come to know God mm -hmm. from that perspective, how do you embrace the body? How do you love the body? As opposed to coming to know God where you can walk outside and pick your food off the tree, or there is sunshine, or there is water flowing. And, you know, as a melanated person, I feel how my body feels when it's warm. It's limber. Mm -hmm. it's, it's loose. Um, I think about the same body when it's cold outside, how it constricts and contracts and how painful movement becomes because that same fluidity is not easily accessible. And when I think about harsh environments versus generous environments, I also think about the way in which we receive God differently mm -hmm. in response to our conditions. And so I circled back to this whole piece about being raised with almost a generosity of understanding my body in response to other spaces. And that embodied generosity gave way for me to have an em embodiment that is nothing short of finding God. Like the older I get, the more I realize how many people are uncomfortable with the idea of an indwelling Godhead. Mm of the possibility that on a cellular level, the God out there in the world is also the God within. Yes. And it's, it's not saying that you have a personal relationship with God. I'm not talking about mm -hmm. selective providence here. So I'm not one who is like, you know, and I have my personal relationship with God. No. The God within myself is no different from the God within a flower. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I am no different from the flower. It, it forces a different kind of reckoning with all of my environment and also a different responsibility in respect to the life that I've been given because my experience of finding and existing within and, and owning my body forced me to have a greater respect for and approach my body with more accountability because the physical body for me is the way in which I see God and navigate through the world with my own sense of God. Um, so that my background has led me to cultivating an aesthetic theology. And so when you ask about where I am with God, that, that's what it is. So I, I see God in the beauty we choose. And I see God in, in the beauty that we bring uh, because our natural world is beautiful. 
Yeah. You... Sorry, I just had to take a moment to absorb all of that. Um, you talked about how we receive God, uh, like the colder or more harsh uh, environment versus a generous environment. And um, I'm probably saying this for the 1,001 time, but I live in the projects. I live in the South Bronx. And the thing that I am most aware of not having grown up there is that there is very little beauty in terms of what I know to be beautiful. Uh, color, art, uh-huh. light. Yep. Um, it's just a very gray place even on a sunny day. And I see graffiti as part of the thing that creates art mm-hmm. in our neighborhood. But there are no sculptures. There are no like beautiful tree-lined streets and all of the things that we think of and like, oh, that's a beautiful neighborhood. It's very cold, very metal, very brick and just dark. And I think about the fact that within a six-block radius, there are five houses of worship mm-hmm. and violence is off the charts. We are number one in, mo- in at least three or four categories of the worst statistics in New York City. Like, Crime is high and life expectancy is low. And gun violence keeps happening almost every morning we wake up and see something on the news and they say, in this section of the Bronx. And I look at my part and I'm like, again, like this was just last night. Oh, this was just last night. Like it doesn't stop. And I think the juxtaposition of all these houses of worship and all of this violence has something to do with how we receive God. Uh Because this one way of being Christian, this one way of like knowing God or coming to God does not reflect the environment we're in. And so you're saying like, oh yes, the Sunday morning and the dress up and the come here and to almost self-medicate and forget that everything is happening right outside the door for two hours. And then you go outside and it is stark, seems like not even a strong enough word, but it is a stark contrast to what's going on outside. And it's a community and people follow each other, but I think there's more fellowship outside than there is on the inside of the church. Well, of course. And, you know, when I consider the formation of the black church in the diaspora, Hmm. I locate the beginnings of the black church outside of church structures. And so you have maroon communities throughout the Caribbean and Latin America, maroon communities here as well. You have the sacred geometry of the ring shout and hush harbors in the United States specifically. And those are embodied places. So you go to meet God out in nature. And where do we find that? We find that in Jesus's actual ministry. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus literally took his ministry to the streets. And so the Sermon on the Mount was on a mount, if you look at Jesus as an accurate historical figure. But even Mm -hmm. if we think about it metaphorically, what does it mean to engage with humankind around a deeper conversation of God underneath the ultimate chapel, the ultimate ceiling, the ultimate peak of the cathedral, and that is the sky? And so when I consider so many churches that are that proliferate communities of color, for me, 
I often wonder what happens or is it possible for the churches to stop isolating and insulating themselves from the community and integrate within the community? How does the church become the place where the young, from the youngest to the oldest, a message of not just God loves you, um, a message that extends itself to proclaim one's beauty, mm. one's acceptance, the fact that one is enough, and by the way, God loves you. What does that type of message do? Because oftentimes in these spaces, in my encounters, the churches have functioned more of a place where you go to change who you are mm-hmm. and not a place to dwell within and expand where you are. And so if you're putting on a costume or taking off your Monday through Saturday clothing, yes, how do you deal with what's there when you're not in the church hat or in the suit or in the, the heels anymore? Yeah. Um, you remind me, um, or something you said reminds me of uh, the theologian. He, although he would not want to be classified as a theologian, Howard Thurman, mm-hmm. um, who just said that theologians try to insulate God, try to box God, yep. and that he was not one of those people. And, you know, the fact of him growing up and finding solace and talking to a tree in the backyard, and, ex- and all of these experimental ways, which for me even tries to make it sound exotic in some way, but I'm like experimental ways of reaching God, communicating with God. I Talk to me about experiencing God in nature. She said, you see that I am no different than the flower. So I have, my daughter is turning five and uh, last spring, uh, when actually two years ago, so when she was three, we started watching bird nests mm-hmm. and I am privileged to live in a neighborhood in New York City where we have a number of birds who nest in our backyard and it becomes this exciting adventure to go and look at the nests and so some of my writing explores uh, nests as geotags and what's fascinating is when you look at the way in which birds build their nests they tend to space them out a certain distance from each other. Different birds put their nests different at different heights in the trees. Uh, different birds choose not to use trees. They even use various building materials to put their nests together. And actually, what sparked my investigation of nesting was one day I was looking at a purple plastic bag in the tree, and I was just like, why is that bag stuck in the tree? And so I stood there and I kept staring at it and I realized when I kind of like expanded my vision that the bag was an insulating component in the bird nest. Mm. And so, you know, so now we just, everywhere we go, we look for the nests and we, we try to find them. And one day we found a particularly low-lying nest and my daughter said, Mommy, can we go and look in it? And I said to her, well, you know, baby, I don't know who's in that nest, but I imagine that there are some adult birds and some baby birds. And in the same way, I wouldn't want anyone looking in your room or invading your personal space or your privacy. I would think that the mommy and daddy birds feel the same. 
it's beginning to have her to train her to see herself around her and to see her needs and her wants as reflective of the needs and wants in in the environment. So this morning she um, was making a play video on like a cell phone and she focused on the backyard and she was talking about the different things that grow and she was just like, well, right now it's empty, but when the weather changes and it's in blooms and you know, the squirrels and the snails and all of these things. And I just constantly for myself tried to find me in everything around me. And I have this wonderful conversation partner in the form of my child who we can do those things together. And so it, I, I talk about it in the context of parenting because it, for me, is the most direct and tangible way of constantly coming back to nature. And so sometimes I pause in the middle of my day to stop and go sit in a park. Uh, you spoke about light earlier. I constantly try to find light wherever I am. Um, I take personal responsibility for creating beautiful spaces, and I've done this since I was a child. So I'm one of five, and I always had the room everyone wanted to be in. And I remember hearing that from when I was very young. Um, they were like, well, we can't stand you, but we like your room. Your room is so peaceful. We don't know what happened to you. But <laughs> How does that work? How does the, I mean, because I, I see it in your dress. I see it in your movement. Um, but you walk with beauty. And I don't mean that in terms of like, um, for my listeners, that she wears like Gucci or any of the like big name labels or anything. But I don't, just follow me. She walks with beauty. And then your energy and all of that goes with it. But how... How do you come to this of creating beautiful spaces? Because many people want beautiful spaces. And the world, television, media will tell us that you've got to go in and do all of this HGTV mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. I have nothing against HGTV, but the ultimate message of whatever you have is not enough. Right, right. And so thank you. And I first have to give credit to my mother and my grandmother. Um, it's funny you talk about beauty. My mother is extremely beautiful. Yes, I've seen the photos. <laughs> yes. And one of the things that I so appreciate about my mom, when we were growing up, my mother was not selfish with her beauty or her self-care. Mm. And so um, the way in which, you know, some parents raise their children to do your schoolwork was the way in which we were raised to do our schoolwork and be responsible for how you look. And so um, we could not leave the house without certain things being in order. Mm -hmm. um, my mom, you know, also growing up in dance hall by her own election when she was an adult, that's the space that she chose to occupy because she occupied a space where beauty was so important for her children, it was, you also will reflect that aspect of my life. So I remember joking um, with my partner about how when I was five, I had like a sky blue leather skirt suit that my mom had like made for me or some mess like that. Um, I had all of these extravagant dresses that to punctuate 
uh, various moments of my life. And it was it was just the thing that she did. She she wanted us to know and understand what it was to feel beautiful. And my mom uh, documented both her life and ours. And in adulthood, I realized that that came from my grandmother. Hmm. And so we have I have a legacy photo with my um, mother, grandmother, and my daughter. And so. Um, in the photo, it's funny, all the adult women have blonde hair, including my grandmother, whose hair actually most people don't realize. My grandmother is fully gray. However, okay. she colors her hair blonde. She dyes it blonde. And at the time, my mom did too, and I did as well. And so here I am growing up as this child who has a grandmother whose emphasis is always on beauty. Mm-hmm. She's a Gemini, it's a Gemini in her. And, you know, even recently, um, she was in the hospital, and she, at some point, she pulled her, like, purse. And I'm kidding you not, Carmen. This woman changed into a dress. She had to wear sneakers, um, but it was the sneakers were cute. Her socks were cute. She put on her perfume. She put on her jewelry, and she was just like, listen, I may be poor, but I have my dignity. Hmm. So grandma is out here like, I won't be caught slipping. So, <laughs> no, exactly. I get yes. that 100%. And what was funny is that in observing my grandmother negotiating the space, the doctors and the nurses treated her with so much dignity mm-hmm. because that is the way in which she viewed herself. She views herself. And so when to circle back to nature, nature is beautiful. When you so we do a lot of bird watching with uh, cardinals and blue jays and starlings because those are the birds we have the most, and we also feed them. And so um, we put food on the ground. And blue jays they fly low to eat, in addition to looking for food elsewhere. And when a cardinal lands in front of you, when a blue jay lands in front of you, male and female. Uh, even though the male of the spe- of both uh, varieties of birds are they are more colorful than the females, they are beautiful, mm. and it's just like oh my goodness, nature comes in these colors, and so when you see that around you, it's so important to take the permission mm. to hold that to esteem oneself the same exact way, and when I consider what it is to have an embodied experience of God. If one believes in God and believes that God has created all things, the same God that made the blue jay with those vibrant colors, the same God with the level of detail that makes Robin's eggs this particular shade of blue with the speckling, is the same God who on every level made you so cellularly perfect. Hmm. Like who we are as physical beings, our nuances are amazing. And to be able to look in the mirror, to be able to look in the reflection of someone else, to be able to look in the face of someone else and to find that, a stripped down, pared down version of that is so empowering. And that is one thing that I definitely gained from dance hall. 
because one thing about Jamaican women, it does not matter size, shape, complexion, hair, texture. Mm-hmm. There is a level of confidence that's just like, I am here, deal with it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I may have a gut, I may have this cellulite, I may have this pinky toe that's all jacked up. <laughs> deal with it. Yeah. I may have thick eyebrows, no eyebrows, skinny nose, big nose, whatever it is, deal with it. And it is this pursuit of self-expression that I find, that's where I find God. And a willingness to be generous enough with one's self-expression to make it beautiful for others to enjoy, for others to share. Well, I have three questions that I'm just going to ask. Kind mm-hmm. of rapid fire, and you just respond whatever comes to mind. Mm-hmm. For you, who or what is God? Oh, I don't know if I want to answer that. I may get myself in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let me hear the second question. Okay. Uh, what the world needs now is. And the third question. Why does this matter? Okay. Why does a deeper conversation with how we connect and communicate with God even matter? So who or what is God for me is there's something about the way in which um, biological women's bodies work that offers such insight into what happens with our planet. And you cannot separate the two. Uh, and I, and I, when I talk about biological women's bodies, whether they are functioning or not, right? I'm, I'm looking at the range of motion with all biological women's bodies, whether someone has a fully functional reproductive system, whether one is dealing with a challenged reproductive system, whether it's a brand new one or an expiring one. Mm-hmm. So to circle back to that legacy photo, I trace my maternal line back seven generations. And my daughter is named after, one of her names is the woman who started our maternal line in Jamaica. And what is so beautiful is that physically she's present as well as energetically or spiritually, however you want to define it. Because men generate their eggs over time. Mm-hmm. Women, we're born with all of our eggs. So you're born with a possibility of all of your children. Not born with, let me take that back. We develop our eggs in utero and then they continue to grow over time. So it's so funny. Um, I was looking at all these old photos of my daughter um, on my mom's social media and my mom referred to my daughter as her egg. Later on, when I started to do just like math and thinking about the process of reproduction, my mom was actually correct. I am my mother's firstborn daughter and my daughter is my firstborn daughter and my mother is my grandmother's firstborn daughter and my grandmother is her mother's firstborn daughter. So what that has meant is that when I was four and a half, five months in utero, 
egg that became my daughter was inside there as well. My mother literally carried my daughter physically and the potential of her. That's deep. It is, right? And so the thoughts of my mother, the thoughts of my grandmother, those thoughts are important because that that became my daughter. And what's even more significant is that because it's this line of first women, our birthing experience has been punctuated by not being certain about the outcome. And so it's almost like this breaking open of one's womb mm. to have a child. You're, you know, my mom always joked about how when having me, she saw these other women going in labor, into labor and she didn't understand what the big deal was until her labor pain set in. Mm. So I came into the world with a sense of wonderment, as did my daughter. It, it, it was this first time. Shinryu Suzuki speaks about Zen mind, beginner's mind. You know, in the expert's mind, the possibilities are few. You know. You know what to expect. You can predict it. But in the beginner's mind, oh, the possibilities are endless. Mm. And so when I think about what a biological woman's body is able to both hold and transform, I cannot help but to think about the very planet that we exist on and how the planet holds and transforms simultaneously. And so when I consider God, I, I root God in a biological woman's body. Deeper Conversations is brought to you by Poor Culture. We do church different.